So this is the first pilot uh, episode of Geopolitico. Uh, as some of you may know, uh, I used to host a blog uh, on which mostly I would be publishing uh, starting in 2010 and really tapering off in around 2015 called The Geopolitico. Uh, some of the archive materials are still available at thegeopolitico.com. And that was a daily and then eventually weekly uh, blog that would cover uh, global affairs with a particular focus on the Middle East. In the coming weeks, uh, I will be transitioning uh, some of that content, but overall the platform to Geopolitico, which will be a cross-geographic uh, uh, political uh, news medium uh, that is still being defined uh, and will commence with this podcast. Eventually, there'll be a fully-fledged website, uh, app, and uh, other channels through which to consume content, uh, most of which will be analytical and editorial. And there will not be any type of limitation, especially in the early days, on the focus issues and areas. But of course, uh, there will be a particular uh, attention paid to, to, pay to uh, the coronavirus situation that is unfolding everywhere at the same time throughout the world. So I want to capture where we are with the coronavirus situation globally. And I'm going to interchangeably call it the coronavirus, COVID-19. Uh, I'm not going to call it the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. Although for people who enter into that debate, I will say you're still calling it MERS, the Middle Eastern Repre Rep <laughs> Respiratory Syndrome. I can't even say it properly. Uh, or the West Nile virus. Even Ebola is named after a particular geographic uh, place in, um, in sub-Saharan Africa. And so, you know, we just have to be careful that we're consistent in this and not get caught up in the wrong debates. Well, globally, uh, things continue to uh, metastasize. Uh, I've always believed that we are on our way uh, to somewhere between 1 to 10 million deaths around the world. I think the pandemic potential is around somewhere uh, in the range of 30 million, if you look at different modeling, there's so much modeling out there. I'll go into that in a separate, perhaps future episode. But because this virus is unprecedented as being a new virus, the nature of the pandemic, a lot of what is out there is just simply uncertain and changing, which is why you've been seeing wildly distorted numbers, numbers all over the place and people disagreeing with one another. But I think the 30 million deaths is no longer in play, at least not over the next 12 months. There have been so many measures taken at an international level and then at domestic and even local levels across so many different countries. And that has meant that the transmission rates have been suppressed and we are not going to see that type of death toll in the short term. However, we're well on our way to 1 million deaths globally uh, and that could reach as much as 10 million. Uh, it really depends on how it hits 
large geographic populations in South Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, and Sub-Saharan Africa, where we have not had the same number of deaths, at least not recorded, as we have had in Western Europe and North America. It's one of the reasons why many people refer to the coronavirus as the rich man's disease uh, and an elite uh, pandemic. Definitely, that is where the rates of transmission have been strongest, and uh, the coronavirus seems to hit uh, older people as well as males, and so you're hitting a particular segment of the population uh, from a demographic standpoint, and then from people who have had this mobility in the world and were the first to spread. However, others also think that the transmission rates uh, have already reached certain levels in a number of countries and are simply not being recorded because of the testing uh, regime that is in place. Time will of course tell and a number of these countries, even in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, are actually starting to test more rigorously and we are going to be able to determine very soon uh, what the death rates there are, at least in terms of the number of death, not necessarily in the mortality rate within the virus um, and the infected cases themselves. So we've reached now on an official level uh, around 1.2 million deaths, uh, 1.2 million cases, sorry, and over 60,000 deaths. Now this is a number in both cases, both of these numbers that are growing significantly every day. So it was only recently where we were around five, 600,000 cases and we were around 30, 40,000 deaths. And so we're seeing this jump that is occurring every day in a significant way. That's about reaching 5,000 and total number of cases ending up somewhere between 60 to 70,000 per day. Obviously these numbers are fast changing, but we're seeing the gravity of the situation. Uh, what we have found is that there are some good sites that are monitoring this on a regular basis. Now some of you, if you just do a basic Google search, you'll find the worldometers.info site. I like that because it's got a lot of granularity and it's updated in real time and uh, through a number of media reports. Other people like COVID tracking, which is a database not just of the number of cases, but rigorously around tests, particularly in the United States. There's the Johns Hopkins tracker, which people uh, are also a fan of, which has a good compelling visual case. And then the World Health Organization publishes on a 24-hour cycle the official data that it's receiving from countries. Now that is re re released on a time-bound uh, criteria, so you might see some of these other sites ahead of the World Health Organization, but it pretty much soon catches up. Now all of these numbers are really what countries are reporting and testing, and doesn't really reflect the total incidence rate or prevalence of uh, this virus. And so we are taking these as the formal case counts, but if you take a look at China, it's been hovering around 80,000 for really the last few weeks. Uh, and so in China, they're showing an incremental case uh, increase, primarily they say driven uh, by uh, foreigners coming in. But really since about the beginning of March, when you had uh, recorded around 80,000, we've seen less than 2,000 cases added uh, to China. And that is quite remarkable given the fact that we're seeing in the United States, you know, upwards of over 20,000 cases added uh, per day. Now for sure, transmission rates have slowed in China, 
but there are, of course, informal numbers that were counteract this, both in terms of cases and deaths that we just don't have access to, and I don't think we are going to be able to determine that anytime soon. So dramatically, we have a situation where you you have a number of uh, cases that are uh, coming out every single day, uh, and it's a case count that's increasing. I'm going to do some further analysis on this and share it uh, with you in a future episode uh, in terms of the rates of increase, the rates of deaths that are occurring. Uh, but what we're seeing is, you know, from a day-to-day standpoint, you know, you are now uh, seeing about a hundred thousand cases added per day, right? Versus if you were about a few days back, we were seeing an additional about 60,000, 70,000, 50,000, etc. So if you look between, you know, March 25th, for example, and March 26th, in that period, we were seeing an additional 60,000 cases versus between April 2nd and April 3rd, we saw over 100,000 additional cases. And so what we're seeing is that you can go from uh, you know, in the logarithmic, you know, scale from one to 10,000, which is looking at exponential, that happened pretty quickly. Um, and from 10 to 100,000, again, that was driven by, uh, by China. So what we're really looking at is that when it took us from 100,000 globally to reach a million globally, and that was really, it took for the month of March. So one month to take us from 100,000 to a million. And why the logarithmic scale is important is because it's showing what we talk about exponential growth. And it can be a misnomer because you might see a greater number of increases, but that's still really a linear increase. It doesn't mean that the curve and the slope is exponentially increasing, and that's when things are really out of control. But uh, what we have seen you know, is, for example, uh, for in one month you went from 100 to a million. Uh, and then the slope has been increasing in that month, right? So once the transmission went outside of China and you had community transmission in these different European countries like Italy, Spain, France, etc., uh, we saw you know an increase in the slope of that curve, and it looked like logarithmically you were going towards some type of exponential curve. However, what we're finding now is that that's not necessarily the case, and the next month will tell us the story, right? So if we go from... 1 million to 10 million within a month, we'll know that we're on the same you know, path there. But if we go from 1 million to 10 million quicker than we went from 100,000 to 1 million, right? So if you think about that's 10 squared to 10 cubed uh, to 10 to the power of four, then you're gonna understand that we are going in a very you know, dramatically difficult direction globally. And you can't discount that because as this gets in under control, or at least maintained in Western Europe and perhaps North America, we're going to see a huge uptick in Sub-Saharan Africa, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and some of those countries, which would have huge case counts, right, in terms of the population. Uh, The other thing to look at is the number of deaths, right? So I think the number of deaths is something that tails uh, the number of cases. So likely, we're going to have a greater number of deaths happen in April, even greater in terms of increase than the number of cases, because of the long cycle of this disease. Uh, Unlike Ebola, it takes a little bit longer uh, for the incubation, the infection, the kind of uh, severity of the case, etc. So overall, we have a very difficult situation. The month of April will tell us a lot globally on, on, on the situation. And in terms of countries, you know, the number one case count is in the United States. Everybody knows that it's around 300,000. And Spain and Italy are right after there. I mean, Italy and Spain, 
you know, I don't want to treat this as a race because this is obviously a very serious matter, but Spain has overtaken Italy in terms of the total number of cases. Uh, and we're going to see that grow because in Italy, it's still not under the same level of control uh, as sorry, in Spain as in Italy. And they started their quote unquote lockdown later. We're also seeing that Germany is have, ha having an uptick in cases and France continues to have a number of cases. So we'll likely see at some point Germany and France possibly overtake Italy. And it just shows you that this virus is indiscriminate. Now, the total number of cases can be itself uh, somewhat of a mirage because you could have a wide population base in a country like China and then, of course, the United States, where you're not accurately seeing the picture. Now, that's something that, of course, President Trump has alluded to quite a number of times. And so one of the statistics that people are using is the total cases per million of population. Uh, and then in that situation, you know, if you discount some of the smaller countries, you know, that have very minuscule populations like Iceland and Luxembourg and, and the Vatican, uh, you're really looking at Spain being the leader in that uh, unfortunate category. But right after that is a country we don't often talk about, which is Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland, which has had a total number of, you know, 20 odd thousand cases, uh, you know, less than the over 100,000 numbers of some of these other countries, they have a small population base. And so that's leading to that, uh, you know, number being quite large and, and outpacing Italy. But um, then there's other countries you might not be thinking of, like Belgium, Austria, and of course, we mentioned France and Germany, but then Portugal, Norway, the Netherlands, all with uh, a case count per million higher than the United States. While this might seem like interesting, an interesting fact, we're now seeing such an uptick in the United States that it could not only become uh, the total leader, which it already is in number of cases, that it will likely become at some point unless things change, the per capita, uh, you know, per million liter in the number of cases. The other thing to uh, kind of watch out for are the deaths per, per million, right? And the deaths per cases. And what we're seeing is that in countries where there can be high case counts like Germany, their death rate is, is a lot lower. And you're seeing that in places like Canada as well, which have been able to keep their death rate quite low uh, and that is through the hospital system that's in place, early detection, testing, and, and, and tracing. Um, but what we're going to see, I think, in these numbers, as I mentioned, uh, which are really centered on Western Europe, is an uptick in some of the other countries. And that becomes important because it's a global pandemic. And if you have a weak point somewhere in the global system, you can have all the borders you want, but it is going to migrate. And we've seen that in, for example, polio eradication, one of the biggest things is to make sure you contain that in within a country because it's very difficult to contain it uh, outside with all of the different travel, migration and touch points, even in a time where we've closed off a lot of that in this period. So the numbers we know are out there and there's a lot to explore around testing, verifying what is a death from coronavirus versus somebody who had coronavirus and happened to die from other conditions as the primary agent uh, uh, that played a role in that uh, mortality. Uh, and there is a lot to get into and perhaps we'll be able to bring in a guest in the future who can discuss some of that. Uh, but it is something that I don't want to explore in this episode. 
uh, because there's a lot of just extraneous particularities there. But let's take a look at the response. Now, we know that coronavirus first hit uh, China uh, back in around October, November, with the first reported case at the end of December to the World Health Organization, and then it becoming published public in the first 10 days of January. And at that time, although China already knew that there was community transmission uh, and other countries uh, surrounding and territories like Taiwan knew about that as well, uh, the World Health Organization did not declare that they had any definitive proof of community transmission early on. Uh, and that means human to human transmission, right? Uh, rather than from the source, etc. And that, you know, of course, uh, is a challenge because it, as you don't understand that your precautionary measures are going to be different. Uh, so immediately China started to contain Wuhan, the city in central China of around 10 million people, uh, and then putting a series of travel restrictions on almost 700 million people around China. And that set off some alarm bells to the extent that around late January, Donald Trump uh, acted and closed down the borders uh, with China uh, in terms of allowing any travel back and forth between the countries. Um, a lot of countries looked at that, but they kept their travel coming from China, including places like Italy, although Italy, to its credit, was an early mover in looking at that travel. They had a lot of links with Wuhan through the uh, apparel uh, industry in northern Italy. Now, a lot of countries uh, seemingly had some incidents uh, from uh, travelers from Wuhan, Canada, and uh, the United States and Washington State and British Columbia early on. And the procedure there, you know, not understanding the fully highly infectious nature of the virus was to ask people to self-isolate uh, and to kind of monitor uh, those individuals. Yet a lot of other individuals continued to fly in, of course, from places like Italy, but even China into these different countries. And so we had a period in the first few weeks of February uh, where Western countries had more and more cases coming in, uh, either of people who were asymptomatic or were symptomatic, were still allowed in, were self-isolating, but ultimately uh, was voluntary in a lot of places. And that led to a number of cases, now we know that, of community transmission. There's a great study in Seattle that was being done in tracking the flu, uh, which found community transmission in the United States early on, that's in late January, and was one of the earlier states, Washington State was, to discover that. And that led to also to Governor Jay Inslee being ahead of the curve in terms of putting down certain restrictions on movement and large gatherings, etc. I mean, Washington State was actually at one point the epicenter uh, in the United States, which has now obviously been vastly overtaken by uh, New York in the, in the U.S. And New York itself almost has more cases than any other country in the world and uh, will have so by the time this podcast is published. Now, in China, when these dramatic measures were undertaken and the number of draconian measures in terms of restrictions, quarantines, isolation, uh, and complete restriction of movement in Wuhan, every type of movement, none of this, you can go to the supermarkets, etc. At some point, everything was restricted. 
should have raised alarm bells around the world. Here was a country that is predicated on maintaining a growth rate and brought its entire economy to a, to a halt throughout the country and put a population of 10 million under full lockdown and a population in Hubei province of around 40 to 15 million on essentially in a full lockdown as well. Now that's a sign uh, that there needs to be a very strict response. But it wasn't until Italy started to have such a great number of cases in northern Italy, uh, still, you know, looking at around a thousand new cases, not five thousand, six thousand, as it eventually did, and definitely the eight, nine hundred deaths, that there started to be this perception that maybe we need a lockdown. But even when Italy went into a lockdown, many countries didn't follow. They didn't fully understand how quickly this virus could spread and what could happen. Now you had two other countries, South Korea and Singapore, which acted very early. Uh, and in what I mean by that is they got ahead on the testing and the tracing. We often heard in the early days in, in you know, the beginning of March when it seemed like the US government was behind the eight ball and was just starting to understand the seriousness of this and they had only performed 25,000 tests. Now that's over a million and growing and the United States seems to have solved in some senses a testing problem, but it's still not where it needs to be. Uh, but compared to other countries, it's actually not in a bad place, believe it or not. Uh, but at that same time, when the United States had similar or less cases as South Korea and Singapore, uh, the South Korean Singapore's were testing at a per capita rate at 50, 60 X the United States. That led to a great ability to uh, track and trace what was happening with this virus and contain it. Now in Singapore, this is easier because they caught it early in January and we're talking about several dozen cases. Uh, and they were actually a world leader, but you know, with 40 cases outside China, that was considered a large number at the time. Uh, they were able to track and trace each person who they would, you know, be in contact with. And Singapore, of course, being a city-state, being, you know, a democracy, but with some limited uh, rights in certain cases, uh, they were able to trace effectively. Now, Singapore ended up with a rigorous testing procedure, and when an initial series of cases really unfolded um, in terms of uh, this church, uh, which, you know, born-again evangelical church, uh, in Daegu, in, in one of the cities in South Korea, they did aggressive contact uh, tracing and were able to start testing in a way to isolate people and limit the cases which were going up by 800 a day to then 100 and under 100. Now, this was very impressive in both of those countries and served as a model of what you could do besides a lockdown or after a lockdown. Now that most Western countries, including the United Kingdom, with the only outlier being Sweden right now, it seems like in Western Europe, going into a full lockdown, we'll talk about what a lockdown is, these countries like Singapore and South Korea become very interesting to see. Now this third case that I wanted to mention quickly, which is what Sweden is undertaking, but what the United Kingdom originally thought about and the Netherlands in terms of pursuing herd immunity, is an interesting one and I think for epidemiologists to go deeper into, but the concept of concentrating herd immunity, which takes place in a generation, like over a generation of a virus, and definitely when there's a vaccine out there and where there's other measures to stem a virus, and that's like a four or five, if not 10, if not greater life cycle. Now you're talking about compressing that in four to five months. Well, that's a, 
uh, possible, but it does mean many people are affected, uh, millions and then thousands die, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands even. And so that just seemed like a very farcical concept, but the UK undertook it. And of course, we've seen the result of that with even Boris Johnson and Prince Charles being infected. Sweden seems to be on that path and we'll wait and see what happens there. But of course, uh, they're likely going to be just as affected as everybody else in Western Europe. When we go back to South Korea and Singapore, while Singapore seemed to be successful and still is dramatically successful, uh, and you know, I don't think we have to look at anything that they're doing as not being uh, uh, successful. They have even announced, the Prime Minister did uh, just yesterday, that they're going into a lockdown as well. Uh, now here's a country that ultimately only had around a thousand cases total, not per day, etc. But they keep having this uptick of 60, 70 cases, still less than 10%. Uh, their deaths are pretty low, under 10. Uh, but they started to have community transmission that they can't explain. And the idea of having a non-lockdown scenario is that you know where all the community transmission is coming from. So we're going to see what happens with Singapore. But just think about that. You know in a virus that affects so many millions of people where each outbreak is originating and coming from. Is that even possible? Well, in China, it is, apparently. But that's a scary thought. In, in China, each person has a QR code which signifies through a color mechanism whether you have the ability to enter into restaurants or public places based not just on if you have the virus or have symptoms, but if you've been in contact with somebody who does, whether you know it or not. And what they're doing in China is using a combination of artificial intelligence, CCTV cameras, and mobile phone data to understand that picture, that they have a personalized profile for each person with essentially their corona quotient. And that's allowed China to start opening up in a significant way, not completely, not in terms of large gatherings, you know, in terms of sporting events and conferences, but restaurants, for example, are operational in Shanghai, Beijing, and cities throughout the country. And even Wuhan is beginning uh, to open up, although you need a special permit to be able to exit Wuhan and Hubei province. So that is one scenario, but that's gonna be very difficult for Western countries, democratic countries, countries that are just quite open or sparse or spread out or without the technology to implement. And so the question is, what is going to be the method by which you contain this virus after the lockdowns that are being implemented? Those aren't solutions, they're just short-term measures as everybody's heard to quote-unquote flatten the curve, lower the caseload, and allow hospitals and medical systems to be able to absorb uh, the number of cases coming in so you lower the death rate. And this open question is a big failure in both global and national public policy uh, ecosystems, which simply have become an echo chamber around stay at home but ultimately that doesn't provide the answer of what comes next. Now, a lot of people are looking at uh, the lockdown and, and that is something that in, in an interim basis needs to happen with all the challenges we just talked about. 
But that ultimately doesn't resolve the situation we're in. This is a new virus. It's a pandemic. And even if it seasonally dissipates, which is not clear, or through the heat in some parts of the world is uh, combated, again, we don't know if that's verifiable at all, or simply just tires itself out, which is a hope, but doesn't seem to be uh, the case with this virus, we're going to have it for quite a while. Now, quite a while means a long time, but potentially the flu keeps coming back 100 years later. Uh, and of course, existed before then. Uh, but ultimately, uh, we need to find a way to A, stop and halt that virus when it reaches somebody's immune system. So how do you strengthen that immune system's ability to combat this virus in an effective way? That's treatment. And how can you ultimately create uh, an, a vaccine which allows somebody to... Uh, essentially be already immune to this virus. Now, there are significant efforts underway on both of these fronts around the world by different research institutes, government, non-government, uh, small and large, and we can detail that in a future, you know, uh, future episode. But ultimately, uh, what we are seeing are two uh, bodies that are driving this. Now, overall, you have the World Health Organization, which is led by Dr. Tedros, the former Ethiopian health minister and foreign minister, uh, took over from Margaret Chan, who's from Hong Kong. Uh, they serve about like 10-year terms. And, and Dr. Tedros has been much more visible, right? So Margaret Chan oversaw uh, really uh, the Ebola situation uh, and, a, and MERS and a couple of other pandemics. Obviously, SARS came earlier. Um, and that's partially, I think, one of the reasons her experience, you know, brought her to the fore. But there was a lot of sense that, you know, the World Health Organization was not on top of things. Now, from a messaging perspective, under Dr. Tedros, it is, but the WHO is not really an implementing body. It can do some research, it can set some standards, it can oversee some teams, but it doesn't have that capability. Even organizations like the Global Fund to Combat HIV, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, which is resourced with $14 billion over a three-year period, has far more reach and ability than the World Health Organization, which is hard to believe, but it's also one of the reasons why we have a problem today where there's not a lot of coordination. So the WHO is setting some standards, etc., cetera, um, and you do have these organizations like the Global Fund, uh, which looks oversees a lot of treatments for these other viruses like HIV um, and, and malaria uh, diseases. And you then have Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines. These are both based in Geneva that does a lot of the vaccine delivery system, the procurement. So once things are developed, those are gonna be engines to push them out um, and, and have that connectivity and have that experience and can feed that back. But really, it's this new organization uh, founded a few years ago, driven a lot by Bill Gates, uh, called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations. And that really was tasked with providing a fast track way of getting vaccines up and running if and when there was a pandemic. Now, that's been really not funded to the extent that it should have been beforehand. And even now today, we're talking about several hundreds of millions of dollars committed to the couple of billion of dollars uh, budget and I don't want to get into numbers because I work with some organizations that are advising them and I and I might know some proprietary aspects of that but 
CEPI, as it's known, is driving a lot of the research uh, agenda right now around coronavirus. And that's going, but that's going to take us about 12 to 18 months to come online. Uh, you know, even if you fast track it, right, it's 12 months, maybe. I mean, and that's still unprecedented. And we haven't talked about developing, manufacturing, distributing and all sorts of other issues uh, that are there. In terms of treatments, now, again, there's a lot of trials. You saw President Trump come out with something uh, around hydrochloroquine, which is used to treat malaria. But it wasn't just him. A lot of people are using that in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, there's a nursing home, an old folks home, where 99% uh, of people have opted into this experimental trial and use of hydrochloroquine to treat uh, coronavirus. And so, and there's a case, uh, there's a study going on in France. Um, and around treatments, look, it's very difficult because people are experimenting on the fly and there's a lot of ethical questions that come up. And to do a proper treatment you know, approach, you need to have randomized control tiles. Well, what's the control group, right? Who are you not offering the treatment to? And who really is turning down this treatment, right? I mean, is it ethical to turn it down? Does a person even have the ability to opt out? And then when everybody's taking it and they quote unquote get better, it's very hard to understand because if only one, two, three, four percent of people are are dying, 95% of people are going to recover, ultimately you could falsely attribute uh, that to the treatment that is being offered. So it's a very difficult time in a pandemic uh, to look at treatments which are on a shorter time scale uh, there. And you're really looking at populations that already have uh, the virus. Uh, now, the primary body looking at treatments, uh, there is a therapeutics accelerator that's been convened by the Gates Foundation and also by MasterCard Foundation and the Wellcome Trust. These are the three largest philanthropic entities in the world, uh, collectively with over $100 billion of endowment. So these are quite, uh, you know, a big deal in terms of resources and ability. And of course, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, you know, under the auspices of both Bill and Melinda, have uh, had this experience and have been looking at this for a number of years. And so they're cycling a lot of funds through that and bringing in other funders like even Madonna uh, to look at, you know, therapies, uh, treatments that can be helpful during this time. Now, this is going to be very critical because without treatments and without a vaccine, we won't see any end to the current uh, crisis. And that's when we're talking about a resolution, right? because you need a resolution. It's not sustainable. Either these short-term shocks economically, but then even the medium-term effects that even if you brought people to work, you're gonna have the travel sector, you're gonna have connectivity lower, you're gonna have economic productivity lower, you're not gonna be able to do certain things until you have the right treatments and vaccine in place. And so this is why this is critical. Now, as critical as it is, how much do you hear about it? other than the offhand comment. How much of the trillions of dollars that have been committed are committed to the treatment and the vaccine? Is it a billion, 10, 100? Well, it's in the order of billions, single digit collectively. And who's coordinating all this? Shouldn't we be sharing all our data and findings and it be open source when something is developed? Well, no, it's all fragmented and many of the studies are proprietary. It's not clear that even they would share it or let go of the patent. Now, if we remember about 100 years ago when a Canadian scientist, Alexander Fleming, discovered insulin, uh, he gave the patent away for $1. 
And so that is the type of thing we need to see today. And we'll see if that actually happens. Now with all this going on uh, in your local community, uh, in your country and around the world, it can be easy to get caught up in all of the discussion, the debate that concerns, of course, seven uh, and a half billion people around the world. I mean, there are weighty decisions that need to be made and it's in real time and this is fast moving. So amidst all this conversation discussion, it can get lost that certain aspects of that, whether it's the risk, the fear, uh, the challenge, is about those larger macro levels, which of course concern you, and not necessarily on your individual or household level. The risk factor still, for most people, is very low. It doesn't mean not taking precautions, but it does mean that you have to separate the debate around what is in the public interest, what should be public policy, and what is your individual case, and allow those discussions to unfold. What we're gonna see in the next coming weeks uh, is obviously a larger set of conversations, but utter devastation to a lot of economies around the world. Unemployment rates reaching 20 to 25%, and GDP numbers being revised downward, sometimes up to 25% in a quarter. It's dramatic. It hasn't been seen before. So as you look at this, know that there are people who are working out there, not just on the front lines, but for solutions and the resolution like I talked about. And what we can do is double down our support for those individuals, for those people, and for those studies and initiatives. So keep a lookout when you see it, even in your small way, in your organization, if you can provide support to the response in the immediate and the long term, please do that. Thank you for joining for this episode, the inaugural pilot episode of Geopolitico. There will be more coming soon. The schedule is not yet set, but thank you for listening in and we'll see you next time. Yeah.